High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is part seven of our ongoing series, Erotic 90s. So we can show the sex act all over the place. I have seen one or two things in my life, but never, never anything like this. This is the third of five episodes in Erotic 90s dealing with films and events of 1992. The time has come to talk about the biggest event of that year in the U.S., the 1992 presidential election. When Bill Clinton defeated George H.W. Bush, he ended 12 years of Republicans in the White House. And that victory owed in part to the Clinton campaign's deft manipulation of a cultural divide into which his opponent's running mate had unwisely inserted a hit sitcom 
produced and written by a female liberal boomer who jumped at the chance to use her show to speak to the issues she cared about and as a cudgel to help put the Reagan-Bush era to an end. Deft manipulation was the hallmark of the Clinton campaign all year, beginning in January, when Bill and Hillary went on a special edition of 60 Minutes airing after the Super Bowl to speak to rumors of his infidelity. The Clintons had been virtual unknowns nationally just a few weeks earlier, when both New York Magazine and Time had run profiles suggesting he was the dark horse Democratic candidate to watch. This was followed by a bombshell on the cover of Star Magazine, which was then a newsprint tabloid competitor to the National Enquirer. Jennifer Flowers, a 42-year-old Arkansas woman in shoulder pads and a bleached blonde bouffant, the visual opposite of Hillary's demure career woman austerity, had been paid $150,000 by the magazine to share her story of what she claimed was a 12-year affair with Bill Clinton, who she had met when he was Arkansas Attorney General in 1977, and which continued until he began seriously pursuing national politics. At which point he got Flowers, a TV reporter and nightclub singer, a job at an Arkansas state agency. Both Bill and Jennifer had denied this affair previously, but Flowers had tapes of conversations that she said she had had with Clinton recently. She described their relationship as the best sex I ever had. The Clintons initially dismissed Flowers' claims, with a spokesperson saying she was, quote, peddling trash for cash. But reporters wouldn't stop asking the candidate about it, so the decision was made to discuss Clinton's indiscretions once, on TV, with his wife at his side. On 60 Minutes, Clinton called the star story false, but in the guise of empathy for Flowers, tied her sale of the story to the bad economy fostered by his opponent, Bush. When the tabloid went down there offering people money to say that uh, they had been involved with me, that she changed her story. There's a recession on, times are tough, and, and I think you can expect more and more of these stories as long as they're down there handing out money. I'm assuming from your answer that you're categorically denying that you ever had an affair with Jennifer Flowers. I've said that before, uh, and so has she. You've said that your marriage has had problems, that you've had difficulties. What do you mean by that? What does that mean? Is that some kind of, uh, help us break the code. I mean, does that mean you were separated? Does that mean that you had communication problems? Does that mean you contemplated divorce? Does it mean adultery? I think the American people, at least people that have been married for a long time, know what it means and know the whole range of things that it can mean. You've been saying all week that you've got to put this issue behind you. Uh, are you prepared tonight to say that you've never had an extramarital affair? I'm not prepared tonight to say that any married couple should ever discuss that with anyone but themselves. 
because the Clintons wouldn't offer specifics or a blanket denial, reporter Steve Croft kept pushing. The couple managed to keep their cool until Croft suggested that they must have some kind of arrangement that allowed Bill to sleep around. I think most Americans would agree that it's very admirable that you had have stayed together, that you've worked your problems out, that you seem to have reached some sort of an understanding and, and an arrangement. Um, wait a minute, wait a minute, but <laughs> wait a minute. You're, you're looking at two people who love each other. This is not an arrangement or an understanding. This is a marriage. That's a very different thing. You know, I'm not sitting here as some little woman standing by my man like Tammy Wynette. I'm sitting here because I love him and I respect him, and I honor what he's been through and what we've been through together. And you know, if that's not enough for people, then heck, don't vote for him. The appearance was a win for the Clintons in the short term, diffusing the bomb before it could blow up Bill's candidacy. Women who were dismayed and angry over the ways in which progress seemed to be rolling backwards every year of a Republican administration were willing to overlook their suspicions that Clinton was a lech. Let's put aside for the moment whether we believe Clinton came clean about his much-reported womanizing and put it behind him, wrote Ms. Editor Robin Morgan. Personally, I confess I'd vote for a gerbil to get this administration out. Although, like most women, I deeply resent the paucity of choices that forces us to settle for the least worst candidate. In 1992, as is true 30 plus years later, white women like Morgan, who were willing to hold their noses and throw their weight behind an imperfect candidate, had a lot of voting power. This victory of sorts also made the Clintons even more of a target, not least because Hillary's shade to Tammy Wynette branded her as a villain to anyone who thought, what's wrong with standing by your man? Plus, there wasn't only one bomb, and the landmines of Bill Clinton's sexual life were still out there waiting to go off. And there were a lot of people on the other side of the political spectrum who would be actively looking for them. This was the political backdrop to everything in 1992. Without actually admitting to anything, the Clintons were running on the idea that they had been more honest about their marriage than any previous presidential candidate, which was true, and that this was just one way in which they could connect and relate to average people and what they were going through. In other ways, their partnership was perceived as dangerously radical because Hillary wasn't like any first lady in history. She was a working woman who had been shaped by the women's movement. At first, she projected this unapologetically. As it became clear that there was a strong backlash to feminism amongst some voters, and there were some parts of the country that had never been changed by feminism, as we saw in our discussion of Thelma and Louise, Hillary's identity as a woman and as a wife shifted into a hybrid that she wore less easily. With a Democratic ticket so unavoidably marked by the modern marriage at its core, 
The Republicans who were striving for a second term seized on the idea of family values as a way to appeal to voters who were turned off by the Clintons. And thanks to Vice President Dan Quayle, an unlikely figure was drawn into the family values debate. Fictional TV reporter Murphy Brown, played by Candace Bergen. Bergen, who starred on the sitcom Murphy Brown for 10 years, beginning at age 42 in 1988, was at the time part of her own unconventional family unit. She spent seven months of the year in Los Angeles shooting her show and raising her young daughter, Chloe, while her husband, legendary French film director Louis Malle, spent most of that time in New York and Paris. The same year that Murphy Brown's sex life became a campaign talking point, Mal was working on his second-to-last film, which, coincidentally or otherwise, explored a politician who, not unlike Clinton, gives into his sexual desire in the most self-destructive manner possible, apparently believing that his power will protect him. Today, we are going to focus on 1992 through the work of Candace Bergen and Louis Mal. While Mal was making a movie about a conservative politician whose life and career is completely undone by an affair and the sexual hypocrisy it reveals, his real-life wife was at the center of a scandal about the sex life of the character she played on TV, which would coincide with the downfall of a conservative politician ushering in a new administration that would be marked by even bigger sex scandals. If Murphy Brown is synonymous with the end of the Bush-Quail era, we could think of Damage as the first film of the Clinton era. So join us, won't you, for part seven of Erotic 90s. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small, When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on. Or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Y-M-R-T. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Candice Bergen met Louis Malle in 1980. She was 34 at the time and had figured she would never marry. I was really at the point where I had given up she told the New York Times four years later. Anybody who wants to can get married. But I was waiting for someone exceptional. I wasn't willing to be bored to death. Once married, Bergen was unsure if she wanted to have kids, as she explains in her second memoir, A Fine Romance. It was 1985. I was 39 and pondering getting pregnant at a time when so many women were resisting the idea because of the feminism and careerism of the time. That I would even ponder getting pregnant at that age was pure chutzpah. One of the iconic images of that period was a pop art cartoon by Roy Lichtenstein of a woman in distress, clutching her face, exclaiming, I can't believe it! I forgot to have children! Bingo. In my magazines from the late 80s and early 90s, this Lichtenstein image is referenced frequently. Of course, these women didn't forget to have children. But then, as now, a lot of women had other things going on. And a baby became a proverbial can that they kicked down the road until, in a lot of cases, it was too late. In Bergen's case, at age 39, she got pregnant with daughter Chloe. Since marrying Mal, Bergen hadn't wanted to take jobs that would lead to long separations. There wasn't a lot of great work in the offering. Though Bergen had been nominated for an Oscar for her near-gonzo performance as Burt Reynolds' self-absorbed ex-wife in the 1979 comedy Starting Over, few of her other performances had been well-reviewed. And she had never fully shaken her image as a patrician Nepo baby. Her father, Edgar Bergen, had been an extremely famous ventriloquist in an era when that was a thing one could be. And Candace had grown up in a Beverly Hills home where her parents frequently socialized with the likes of Jimmy Stewart and Fred Astaire and the Reagans. She flunked out of college and made her first movie, The Group, at age 19. Pauline Kael famously assessed her performance by snarking that the only flair Bergen possessed was in her nostrils. Even after Mike Nichols cast her in Carnal Knowledge, Bergen struggled to be taken seriously. Plus, in the 60s and 70s, as Bergen later observed... There were almost no strong, dignified, assertive women parts. Most of it was the sullied female, the trampled blonde. 
She was not interested in these parts and focused instead on traveling the world, writing and photographing magazine stories. She bought her own apartment on Central Park, real estate being the ultimate totem of a woman in control of her own life. Bergen's career prospects changed when agent Brian Lord sent her the pilot for Murphy Brown. Bergen felt she was a natural comedian, but she had never considered doing a sitcom. In fact, she talked as though she had never seen a sitcom. But she felt she was perfect for this part and fought for it. Her instincts this time were correct. Murphy Brown was an instant hit, and Bergen's namesake character became one of the most iconic of the era. But a sitcom schedule is grueling, and for seven months of the year, Bergen was contractually obligated to be close to Burbank with little time off. This wouldn't be much of a problem, except that Louis Mall hated L.A. and did not intend to work in Hollywood. Just before Murphy Brown premiered in the fall of 1988, Mall had made what many consider to be his masterpiece, Ovois les enfants, which fictionalized his own experience at a Catholic boarding school during World War II, where a priest was protecting Jewish boys from being captured by Nazis. The movie won the top prize at the Venice Film Festival and Seven Césars, the French Oscars. When the American Oscars came around in the spring of 1988, Mall was nominated for Best Foreign Film and Best Screenplay. Mall and Bergen, despite their better instincts, bought into the hype that Mall was a shoe-in to win the Foreign Language Award. As Bergen later wrote, He was almost out of his seat to accept the Oscar when Faye Dunaway and James Garner announced that Babette's Feast had won Best Foreign Language Film. It knocked the wind out of us. We felt bushwhacked. The mood in the house was black for a week. We barely spoke while feeling humiliated for taking it so seriously. Louis took the kids and returned to Europe to lick his wounds. He had to get out of L.A. Mal would not work in the U.S. again for five years. So he and his wife were separated for most of the year for the rest of their marriage. Bergen's decision to live her life without compromising to make room for a man was one thing that connected her to the character she played on TV. When Bergen appeared on the cover of Playboy in 1989, she was asked, does it bother you that Murphy's wit, often at the expense of men, caters to the stereotype of successful women as bitches and ballbusters? Bergen responded, I don't see her like that. In Vanity Fair, she described how she did see the character in detail. Quote, she lives her life like a man, a take-no-prisoners journalist. Women like that about her. I think women also like the fact that she's a professional woman in her 40s. She's endearingly cantankerous and opinionated. So many of us are constrained by the rules of good behavior most of the time. Murphy has never been confined by that. I think that a lot of us who chafe under those kinds of constrictions find it incredibly refreshing to have a woman or a man like that. I think the fact that Murphy is a woman 
just makes it gravy for people because there's never been a woman character quite like this before. But Murphy's challenge to gender roles was controversial for all the factors that we've been talking about going back to the beginning of erotic 80s. Bergen did tons of press for the show, appearing not just on the cover of Playboy dressed in a man's tuxedo, but also on the covers of magazines ranging from Rolling Stone to Esquire to McCall's, where in October 1989, she shared top billing with Soups for Fall Suppers, which was funny because Bergen was the first to admit that she was almost in a state of terror in the kitchen. In that article, she diffused any knee-jerk resentment with which a housewife reader might approach the actress who played the most famously childless middle-aged ambition monster on TV by pointing out that men were alienated by women who applied the tactics that helped them get ahead at work to their personal lives. Quote, Men tell me they don't know how to deal with women who slap business cards on the table and say, call me, Bergen told McCall's. The last 10 years have been so confusing. American women are aggressive by nature, and the women's movement hasn't helped. Bergen frequently spoke to the ways in which Murphy Brown punctured the fantasy that women could have it all. I don't think women should embrace her as a role model wholeheartedly, Bergen told Linda Ellerby, one of the actual models for Murphy Brown in a Ladies Home Journal feature. There's a real downside to Murphy's choices. She's a victim of her success in a way. She deals with it very deftly now, but I wonder how well she's going to deal with it in the 90s. In an Us Magazine interview, she was asked to contemplate Murphy's personal life, which hadn't yet been explored on the show. Overall, I imagine her sex life to be a wasteland, Bergen said, really sparse, just by virtue of her schedule. In another McCall's feature from 1991, Bergen said, All these women combine children and work and marriage, and it all looks so easy. It makes the rest of us feel like wimps and weenies. I don't think it is easy. It may not be easy, but Bergen always noted that though her own marriage might be unconventional, it was still not just the best thing in her life, but a kind of miracle that had saved her life. A lot of women probably don't want to hear that it took finding Mr. Right to make your life complete, Playboy's David Chef warned her. To which Bergen responded, What can I tell you? I really resent being confined politically as to what has made me happy. Finding me was also what it took to make my husband happy. It just happens that I'm a woman, and it's politically unfashionable for me to admit that the two happiest days of my life were the day I got married and the day that Chloe was born. Bergen's daughter was two when she began filming Murphy Brown. On hiatus from the show, she started contemplating having another child. Though age was against her, as was the fact that she saw her Paris-based husband infrequently, Candace and Louis wanted to try. It didn't happen. And then, two years later, the National Enquirer poured salt in the wound by running a story headlined, Candace Bergen's heartache. She can't have another baby. The tabloid suggested that the actress had been forced to choose her career over her personal life, 
because there would be no way for the actress to get pregnant without making the character pregnant. Quote, Candace's TV bosses have warned her that having a child could wreck her hit show. They told Candace that to change her character, to make Murphy Brown maternal, just wouldn't work out. It could wreck the show and destroy all that Candace has worked so hard to achieve. The National Enquirer was wrong. Candace Bergen may not have gotten pregnant in the early 90s, but Murphy Brown would. And it would push this hit show into a realm of sociopolitical relevance that Bergen had never imagined a sitcom could take her. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from Inland, Oregon, who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. As the fourth season of Murphy Brown was beginning in the fall of 1991, the show was an established hit. It wasn't the number one show on TV. That was Cheers. But its ratings had grown every season. And CBS, which had previously been in a slump outside of its Sunday night one-two punch of 60 Minutes and Murder, She Wrote, was able to use Murphy's success to draw more viewers to shows like Designing Women, 
and Northern Exposure. Bergen won the Emmy for Best Actress in a Comedy in 1990 and 1991. She renegotiated her contract to earn six figures per episode, plus hefty residuals in syndication. And her sitcom fame led to a long and extremely lucrative gig as the spokeswoman for phone company Sprint. After three years on the air, Murphy Brown and Candace Bergen were culturally inescapable. Season four would be the last overseen by its creator, Diane English. She asked herself, what is the biggest challenge we can give to this character who hasn't made room in her life for a pet or a man? During season three, she and Bergen and the writers had dinner in the private room at Mr. Chow to talk it through. It was decided to end the season on a cliffhanger. Two men from Murphy's past come back into her life, both wanting to rekindle a relationship. At the end of the season three finale, while still unsure which man she wants to be with, Murphy takes a home pregnancy test. The episode ends with her and us learning that it's positive. In the season four premiere, Murphy confirms the father is her ex-husband, Jake, who, though he was proposing marriage the last time we saw him, has now decided he doesn't want to be tied down. So Murphy resolves to raise the baby on her own. English and Bergen didn't immediately think this would be controversial. Virtually every mother is a single mother is how I see it. Bergen told Maureen Dowd. I mean, everyone I talk to, there's nobody else at home. Certainly for much of the year, she raised Chloe alone. When a reporter asked English if she was worried about the repercussions of the fictional character giving birth out of wedlock, English replied, no, why would there be any repercussions? It's 1992. Murphy Brown saw no ratings dip once the character became pregnant, but reporters kept asking about the plot line as though it could tank the show at any moment. Midway through the season in a People cover story, Bergen insisted that the show was not advocating motherhood out of wedlock. We are not sending a message urging single women to have babies, Bergen said. The show has to portray the reality of how difficult it is. It isn't the ideal. The message about the reality faced by her fictional character was inside the magazine, while on the cover, Bergen spoke in the language of fairy tales, praising her husband for having saved me from the loneliness I was so used to living with. The baby debuted in the season four finale, which aired Monday, May 18th, 1992, and became the most watched show that week. 33 million people tuned in. At a time when ratings only counted people who watched a show in real time on the night it first aired. The next day, Vice President Dan Quayle made a campaign stop in California two weeks ahead of that state's presidential primary. In scripted remarks delivered at the Commonwealth Club, the VP addressed how re-electing he and President George H.W. Bush would help solve the problems that led to what was being called the L.A. riots, 
the uprising that began three weeks earlier in response to the acquittal of the four LAPD officers caught on video beating Rodney King. You may be asking yourself, how did Quayle get from the L.A. riots to Murphy Brown? He rode there on the magic carpet of family values. Here is what I think are the key segments of the speech before the mention of Murphy Brown. No matter how much you may disagree with the verdict, the riots were wrong. And if we as a, as a society don't condemn what is wrong, how can we teach our children what is right? But after condemning the riots, we do need to try to understand the underlying situation. In a nutshell, I believe the law, lawless social anarchy, which we saw, is directly related to the breakdown of the family structure, personal responsibility, and social order in too many areas of our society. For the poor, the situation is compounded by a welfare ethos that impedes individual efforts to move ahead in society and hampers their ability to take advantage of the opportunities America offers. If lawless social anarchy is what you get from welfare, what should we do about the poor? Here's another segment. And for those concerned about children growing up in poverty, we should know this. Marriage is probably the best anti-poverty program of all. Among families headed by married couples today, there is a poverty rate of 5.7%. But 33.4% of the families headed by a single mother, mother are in poverty. So single mothers really shouldn't exist, but if they do, they definitely shouldn't be portrayed on TV. Here, finally, is audio from the part of the speech that proceeded to go ultra-viral. Ultimately, however, Marriage is a moral issue that requires cultural consensus and the use of social sanctions. Bearing babies irresponsibly is simply wrong. Failing to support children, one is fathered, is wrong. And we must be unequivocal about this. It doesn't help matters when primetime TV has Murphy Brown, a character who supposedly epitomizes today's intelligent, highly paid professional woman mocking the importance of fathers by bearing a child alone and calling it just another lifestyle choice. I know it's not fashionable to talk about moral values, but we need to do it. Quayle's full remarks are really incredible as an example of how the response to the Rodney King verdict allowed Quayle to put a new racist spin on the family values rhetoric his campaign had been using to target Clinton all year. Even before this speech, Quayle was widely thought to be an idiot, or at best, a puppet. But those who had been paying attention to the far-right anti-Hollywood rhetoric being pushed by the likes of Michael Medved saw in Quayle's speech a kind of genius. Time magazine reported that some observers, quote, suspected that the vice president's remarks fit into a calculated strategy to suggest that LA's rioters 
who were mostly Black and Hispanic, have in common with feminists and other Democrats a shoddier moral standard than nice people who should therefore vote Republican. Medved, Quayle, and others seized on Hollywood films and pop records that dealt with sex and violence because these cultural products were useful as scapegoats. Republicans had been running shit for a dozen years, and yet there was still poverty and violent crime. And some people felt their lives were getting worse and worse and felt angrier and more disillusioned. But if you pointed to movies and TV shows and rap songs and said they were to blame, then the Republicans in power didn't have to take any blame. And in fact, they could point out that the people who made a lot of the movies and shows and songs were Democrats. Other than time, few publications made note of Quayle's brilliant trick of demonizing people of color and feminists and Democrats and Hollywood all in one fell swoop. Because the part where the potential future president called out a fictional sitcom character was just too irresistible. The New York Times reported that this speech was warmly received in the room They also noted that Quayle's rhetoric, quote, included much stronger and more intensely ideological language than the president himself has used. Mr. Quayle's words today seem to reflect his role as the representative of the Republican right in an otherwise largely non-ideological White House. The day after the speech, the New York Daily News devoted nearly their whole cover to a picture of Bergen, a picture of Quayle, and a giant headline. Quail to Murphy Brown, you tramp. Veep, TV's unwed mom, symbol of U.S. woes. Diane English released a statement on behalf of the show. If the vice president thinks it's disgraceful for an unmarried woman to bear a child, and if he believes that a woman cannot adequately raise a child without a father, then he'd better make sure abortion remains safe and legal. Maybe because everyone was talking about Murphy Brown and no one was talking about Quayle's insensitive links between anti-LAPD anger, the real lives of poor people in the inner city, and a fictional middle-aged millionaire celebrity, Quayle doubled down on these links the very next day. This is a quote from a Washington Post story from May 21st. Hollywood thinks it's cute to glamorize illegitimacy, Quayle told reporters outside a predominantly Black middle school in South Central Los Angeles. Hollywood doesn't get it. But the Post story suggested it was the Bush administration that didn't get it, at least if it was how to win the press cycle that the VP had sucked them into. Quote, White House Press Secretary Marlon Fitzwater first defended Quayle, then defended Murphy Brown, then cheerfully offered to marry the already married Candace Bergen. When asked about it by reporters, the president said, I'm not going to get into the details of a very popular television show. The controversy coincided with the last week of Johnny Carson hosting The Tonight Show and it provided the departing host and his guests with tons of material. 
Here is a clip from Robin Williams' appearance on the second-to-last Carson show on May 21st, 1992, the day after Quayle's appearance in South Central L.A., where he said, Hollywood doesn't get it. I said last night, thank God for Quayle. He kept us alive for two more nights. Oh, yeah, Quayle. Yeah, yeah. They sent him down to the hood. That was great. <laughs> yeah, he thinks he's now a homie right now. <laughs> yeah, Dan's hanging. Look, it's Goy's in the hood. <laughs> Hi there, you have got to chill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is real death. Hold it right. Whoa, what it is, what it was. Yeah. Oh, man, you dumb. <laughs> God, the guy is, he's like one taco short of a combination plate, you know? <laughs> Amazing. I really, I think that they told him about the Murphy Brown thing. I think George said, all right, here's the deal. I want you to go out there and talk about Jerry Brown. <laughs> Jerry Brown, Jerry Brown, Jerry Brown. Buster Brown, Buster Brown, Buster Brown. Buster Brown, Buster Brown, Audie Murphy, Audie Murphy, Audie Murphy, Audie Murphy. Murphy Brown! Murphy Brown makes me so... Don't you realize that he's Rain Man? As you can hear, these jokes are not perfectly progressive or politically correct. And they're not promoting Democrats, but they still had the effect of turning public opinion against Quayle. Initially, there was some debate in the media as to just how much Quayle and his team understood what they were doing. There was no question that he really believed in the family values message, but there was much speculation, and not just by Robin Williams, as to how the Murphy Brown reference got into the speech to begin with given that Quayle acknowledged never having seen the show. The show had taken shots at him, though. For example, in one episode from three years earlier, Murphy's mom, played by Colleen Dewhurst, had said she complained in restaurants because, quote, we can't let people get away with shoddy service. It begins with overcooked meat and ends with President Quayle. Murphy Brown also mocked Democrats. This is a clip from a season four episode which was written in late 1991 and aired in early 1992, about a week before Clinton emerged as the front runner. I'm sorry, Miles, but I just can't handle this story. I've covered famine, floods, and the collapse of the inner cities, but this is just too bleak and depressing. Oh, snap out of it, Frank. Look. We're doing an hour on the Democratic candidates, and that's final. Who's going to sponsor it? Samanex? There's no way we can make it interesting. It's like a lopsided Miss America pageant. Oh, sure, maybe some of them can twirl a baton or play the bassoon, but in the end, George Bush is still the cute girl from Texas, and the Democrats are 49 bow-wows from other states. <laughs> But Diane English later acknowledged that she had given Bush's VP special treatment. Quote, We were so mortified that Dan Quayle was a heartbeat away from the presidency that we just felt it was our job to do a Dan Quayle joke every week. And so every week we did one. And after a while, it was becoming too easy because he would say and do things we could not make up. So eventually we phased that out but apparently it left quite an impression on him. He never forgot it. Bergen, though personally socially liberal, had been lifelong friends with the Reagans. 
But when it came to quail, she supported English. I always thought the vice president was kind of cute, you know, in a defenseless way. But now, Bergen told TV Guide, the administration has taken such an arrogant, aggressive tone. And I find that really offensive. I think there are a lot of Democrats out there who are offended by the fact that the Republicans seem to claim the franchise on family values. Today, you could imagine a right-wing politician like Quayle in an election year, searching for something the media would latch on to, counting on the far-right base to get fired up by their hatred of the supposedly omnipotent liberal Hollywood. But at that time, the national media consensus was that this was an instance of Quayle misunderstanding or misspeaking on something he had been briefed on, similar to the many gaffes Quayle had made in the past that had made him such an easy target for comedy shows. In mid-1992, though Quayle's tendency to garble the medium became the message, he was still a representative of the long-entrenched status quo, and the so-called liberal elite saw themselves as Davids punching up at Goliath. As English said in a Time cover story devoted to wringing hands over the liberal bent of TV, with 12 years of Republicans who were followed around by the press with every word and every speech documented, perhaps Hollywood's liberal bent is kind of a natural balance to that. It wasn't just Time that used the Quayle-Murphy-Brown affair to caterwaul about the left-wing cabal that ran Hollywood. The week of Quayle's initial comments, the LA Times ran a column by Rick Dubrow explaining that, like it or not, and he excerpted from a number of letters from readers who didn't like it, some of the most powerful TV producers in Hollywood, from Norman Lear to Stephen Bochco, were liberals who wrote their politics into their shows. While Quayle was blaming the L.A. riots on Candace Bergen and deadbeat dads, Bochco's teenage doctor, Doogie Hauser responded to the same event by adding the Martin Luther King quote, a riot is at bottom the language of the unheard, to his computer diary. These creators were allowed to put their spin on hot-button issues because their TV shows were so popular and made so much money. The fact is, Dubrow wrote, that the rules here are much the same as anywhere, including Washington. Clout is the name of the game. English was not the only one to use her clout to rile up Republicans. A year earlier... Designing women creator Linda Bloodsworth Thomason wrote an episode in which her characters, mostly white Southern women from both sides of the political spectrum, watch Clarence Thomas's confirmation live and debate the issues surrounding Anita Hill's accusations of sexual harassment. The summer of the Murphy Brown dust-up, Bloodsworth Thomason and her husband produced a campaign film for Bill Clinton which introduced the candidate at the Democratic National Convention. The convention took place in mid-July, around the time Us Magazine put out their monumental 1992 Sex in Entertainment special issue. The opening story, titled Sex in Entertainment, How Far Can It Go?, nailed the national mood that summer. Quote, 
America has always had a split personality on this subject, and now, when sexual permissiveness can mean death, the country's libido is forced to go underground once again. Contradictions reign. At the same time, Dan Quayle berates the single motherhood of Murphy Brown and gets a disturbing amount of support. Basic Instinct, with its ice-pick-wielding nympho, brings in over $100 million at the box office. Cut to August 30th, 1992, the Emmy Awards. The ceremony served as validation for Bergen and English, who won statues for Best Actress and Best Comedy Series, respectively. The New York Daily News, the same paper that had used the word tramp on its cover the morning after Quayle's speech, now went with this cover line. Murphy in a landslide. Brown victory spells trouble for Quayle. Prez. English and Bergen were given their awards at the end of what the paper described as a long night of anti-President Bush and Quayle comments. Both Bergen and English referenced Quayle in their acceptance speeches. Two weeks later, Time magazine put a beaming Bergen on their cover, wearing a button that read, Murphy Brown for President. Inside the magazine, Richard Zoglin fumed that, quote, the gang stomping of Dan Quayle at the Emmy Awards ceremony resembled a Rodney King beating by the Hollywood elite. That time cover came out on September 21st, the same date as Murphy Brown's season five premiere, in which the fictional TV reporter would answer to the real political scandal that had exploded during the show's hiatus. It had been, as Bergen put it, a surrealistic episode in this country's political life. Her sitcom took advantage of that surrealism. The first half of the hour-long season premiere has Murphy struggling to get her baby to sleep on his first night at home. Then, at the end of the first half hour, her co-worker Frank comes over and offers to watch the baby so that Murphy, who has been wearing the same pajamas for days, can finally shower. As Murphy turns to head upstairs, Frank turns on the TV. Today in a speech focusing on the American family, Vice President Dan Quayle had some strong comments on what he termed a poverty of values, citing Murphy Brown as an example. The speech, what? part of a West Coast was campaign swing, was delivered well, it in sounded San Francisco like it, but showing to the Commonwealth Club of California. It doesn't help matters when primetime TV has Murphy Brown. He is talking about you. today's intelligent, highly paid professional woman, mocking the importance of fathers by bearing a child alone and calling it just another lifestyle choice. Mr. Quell later expanded his remarks to say that he believed examples like Murphy Brown glamorize single motherhood, sending glamorize single motherhood. What planet is he on? European community. Look at me, Frank. Am I glamorous? First night, you look disgusting. You're damn right. People in prison get to shower more often than I do. And what was that crack about just another lifestyle choice? Murph, take it easy, the I baby. I agonized over that decision. I, I didn't know if I could raise a kid by myself. I know, I know. I worried about what it would do to him. I worried about what it would do to me. I didn't just wake up one morning and say, oh, gee, I can't get in for a facial. I might as well have a baby. <laughs> 
I don't blame you for being angry, but consider the source. I mean, this is the same guy who gave a speech at the United Negro College Fund and said what a waste it is to lose one's mind. <laughs> then he spent the rest of his term showing the country exactly what he meant. Look, tomorrow he's probably going to get his head stuck in his golf bag and you'll be but old news. Said... Murph, it's Dan Quill. Forget about it. The second half of the episode begins with a montage of people in Murphy's newsroom and local bar reading real newspaper coverage of Quayle's speech, including the Daily News Tramp cover. Though her baby is only a few days old, Murphy decides she has to go back to work to respond. The American family and American values. This reporter has a unique perspective on the topic because in a recent speech, Vice President Quayle used me as an example of the poverty of values in this country and implied that I was a poor role model for our nation's youth. While some might argue that attacking my status as a single mother was nothing more than a cynical bit of election year posturing, I prefer to give the Vice President the benefit of the doubt. These are difficult times for our country, and in searching for the causes of our social ills, we could choose to blame the media or the Congress or an administration that's been in power for 12 years, or we could blame me. <laughs> and while I will admit that my inability to balance a checkbook may have had something to do with the collapse of the savings and loan industry, I doubt that my status as a single mother has contributed all that much to the breakdown of Western civilization. But tonight's program should not be simply about blame. The vice president says he felt it was important to open a dialogue about family values, and on that point, we agree. Unfortunately, it seems that for him, the only acceptable definition of a family is a mother, a father, and children. And in a country where millions of children grow up in non-traditional families, that definition seems painfully unfair. Perhaps it's time for the vice president to expand his definition and recognize that whether by choice or circumstance, families come in all shapes and sizes. And ultimately, what really defines a family is commitment, caring, and love. With that in mind, I'd like to introduce you to some people who might not fit into the vice president's vision of a family, but they consider themselves families nonetheless. They work, they struggle, they hope for the kind of life for their children that we all want for our children. And these are the people we should be paying attention to. Welcome to FYI. Would you introduce yourself, please? Yes. I'm Mary Bailey, and this is my daughter, Cameron. Hello. And you, ma'am? Uh, I'm Nadine, and this is my son, Manuel. Hello. And you, sir? In this speech and in the introduction of single parents and their kids, played by real, non-actor single parents and their kids, the episode moves from surrealism to sanctimony. But in September 1992, a lot of people thought it hit the exact right note. This episode was watched by almost 50 million viewers, which was, as Vanity Fair put it, more than the total number who viewed any hour, on any night, of either the Democratic or Republican convention last summer on ABC, CBS, NBC, and PBS combined. 
Six weeks later, Dan Quayle was voted out of a job, and Bill Clinton and Al Gore were voted in. The stories about Clinton's sex life hadn't gone away. Amongst other things, Jennifer Flowers had gone public with her audio tapes, documenting a relationship that seemed much more intimate than what Bill and Hillary had alluded to on 60 Minutes. But voters had bought Clinton's message that his personal life was his personal business, and that what stimulated him behind closed doors was far less important than his promises to stimulate the economy. Three years earlier, in her Playboy interview, Bergen had mused that America had only needed a sexual revolution because, compared to Europe, we were, quote, warped to begin with. She added, It all strikes Europeans as incredibly immature, the way that we persecute politicians with these incredibly self-righteous, moralistic witch hunts, as if anyone could be held accountable to such standards. So you could say it was very European of American voters to choose Clinton over these self-proclaimed family values tickets. But while the American media was pitting his wife against Dan Quayle, Louis Maul spent 1992 making a film about sex, politics, and the sweaty base truth behind a family values facade. That movie's reception would test just how ready Americans really were to confront the ugly truth of a powerful man's repressed libido. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Earlier in this episode, I quoted from the editorial that opened the March-April 1992 issue of Ms. Magazine, in which Robin Morgan wrote that, after 12 years of Reagan and Bush, she would rather vote for a gerbil for president than a Republican. But she went on to indicate that even if Clinton was the lesser evil, women had his number. Quote, We're tired of Jekyll and Hyde politicians, of double standards set by men with power to deny or limit our private right to self-determination over our bodies while they hide their scandals, sexual, fiscal, or otherwise, behind privacy. When this editorial came out, Louis Mall was in London, making a movie about the incompatibility of true family values with a culture of repression and double standards, in which men think they can do whatever they want 
and hide it behind a right to privacy. When Ovois Les Enfants failed to win the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film, Mal felt wounded. Not necessarily because he lost to Babette's Feast, but because he had fallen into the trap of taking the Oscars seriously. He had allowed his ego to get sucked into a machine that he knew, rationally, did not serve him as an artist or care about him as a person. He retreated to France and made a film called May Fools about his experience in the French countryside after the student protests in Paris in May 1968 had effectively shut the country down. First with Ovois Les Enfants and then with May Fools, Mal had made two original, extremely personal films, pairing his own experiences to French history. Damage, based on a 1991 novel, was the story of an English member of parliament who falls in lust at first sight with his 20-something son's girlfriend, with disastrous consequences. It was clearly not Mal's own story. But in other ways, he was the right person for the job. After breaking out as a director with Elevator to the Gallows, which was released in 1957 when Mal was only 24, he reteamed with that film's female star, Jean Moreau, to make The Lovers the following year. The Lovers would become a huge international hit, but its depiction of Moreau's character orgasming was deemed obscene by the state of Ohio. A Cleveland Heights theater owner named Nico Jacobellis showed the movie anyway and was brought up on charges, which were appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. That body deemed that The Lovers was not obscene, but could not agree as to what was. Justice Potter Stewart famously wrote of obscenity, I know it when I see it, and the motion picture involved in this case is not that. Mal had continued to intermittently explore sexuality in films such as Pretty Baby, which we discussed in our Polly Platt season, and Murmur of the Heart. When he signed on to Damage, Mal thought about moving the action to France, but decided Britain was a better place for it. The fact that the story is taking place in England, where there is a certain rigidity and puritanism, makes it stronger, he said. The unfaithful politician, Mal added, is experiencing disorder and chaos for the first time and doesn't know how to cope. If this story had been about a French politician, it wouldn't have the same force. This way, it's more interesting than it would be in a more relaxed culture. But Mal did make the femme fatale Anna French, which allowed him to cast 28-year-old Juliette Binoche. A decade into her career, with films by Godard and Carax already on her resume, Benoche was introduced to most American audiences as the younger of Daniel Day-Lewis's two lovers in Philip Kaufman's The Unbearable Lightness of Being. This time, she would be placed in a triangle consisting of Rupert Graves as the son and Jeremy Irons as the father. When Mal cast Irons, he had just won the Best Actor Oscar, for playing Klaus von Bülow in Reversal of Fortune. Miranda Richardson, who played his wife, had just been second billed in the Oscar-nominated international art house hit Enchanted April. So this was a very hot package of stars. And given Moll's pedigree, 
Damage was a highly anticipated film that got loads of advanced press, a buildup that may have skewed expectations. For much of its running time, Damage is an extremely austere, quiet film, its form essentially hewing to the very polite facade of the British political dynasty at its center. Stephen, played by Irons, is a doctor-turned-MP who entered his wife's family business. Her father is retired from what we are led to understand, was a formidable and lucrative political career. When we first meet him, the silver-haired Stephen seems to be the quintessential stereotype of British manhood. Buttoned up and unemotional, totally focused on the practical and remunerative. When his wife Ingrid tells him their adult son Martin has a new girlfriend, Stephen rolls his eyes and wonders why the women Martin pursues can't see that he just wants to get a leg over. Ingrid is the one to roll her eyes later in the same scene when Stephen recaps a conversation he had with the prime minister in which Stephen, in consideration for a cabinet position, said his family is more important than power. Obviously a strategy to accrue more power. Then, Stephen is at a boring government cocktail party when in walks Benocious Anna, who introduces herself as his son's new friend. Dressed in all black with a severe short haircut, she has the vibe of a silent film vamp, the kind that the poor, angelically beautiful silent film men fell for at first sight, even as the audience could see that she was obviously the angel of death. And true to that form, Anna haunts Stephen until he finds himself inviting himself over to her apartment in the middle of the day. He arrives, and without saying a word, they have sex on the floor. The sex scenes of Damage are unique, totally sparse compared to the au courant Hollywood style of sex as florid musical interlude, pioneered by Adrian Lyne and taken to a new, heightened level by Paul Verhoeven. If those films treat sex like a music video, Damage treats it like experimental ballet. In our last episode, I talked about how Basic Instinct put an end to the trend of films begun by Fatal Attraction, depicting dangerous sexual situations that seemed to be ripped from real life. In that sense, though it went into production before Verhoeven's movie made its full impact, Damage is a post-Basic Instinct erotic drama. Ma's movie is about a dramatic dynamic that few could relate to in their own lives. It reaches for the mythic rather than grounding itself in reality. Similarly, it depicts a kind of sex that looked more like acrobatic torture than any bedroom activity Hollywood movies had portrayed previously. In this sense, it took Basic Instinct one step further. Sharon Stone had complained that she had been directed into uncomfortable positions that no woman would choose and which certainly couldn't lead to orgasm. Damages sex scenes up that ante. Stephen and Anna are often literally falling into positions that look more uncomfortably contorted than ecstatic. They rarely manage to take their clothes off before doing it or get to a bed. The scenes are driven by urgency and compulsion. 
Anna is a ghost who turns him into an animal. Irons described Stephen as being addicted to Anna. And when you see the film that way, it makes sense that he ignores every red flag. Such as when, in a rare moment of acknowledgement that his behavior will have consequences, he suggests leaving Ingrid and Anna dissuades him from doing so. Or when as Pillow Talk, she tells him that her brother killed himself because of his incestuous love for her. Of course, Anna picked the right family on which to pay that particular trauma forward. Ingrid is unusually jealous of Anna's relationship with Martin, who we later learn looks a lot like Anna's dead brother. Ingrid doesn't know about Stephen's affair. She buys his claim that he's spending late nights at the House of Parliament for a vote, which is the movie's funniest dig at political hypocrisy. And though she has no idea the extent to which this young woman is eating away at her family, the way she's growing stronger by pulling power from both father and son, Ingrid is immediately and irrationally hostile towards Anna anyway. Turns out her instincts are good, as are those of Anna's mother, played in a startling three-scene cameo by Leslie Caron, who instantly clocks what's going on and tells Stephen he must end the affair. But Stephen cannot break the addiction, and he seems unable to fathom that he really needs to. He's so used to keeping up appearances that all throughout, he thinks he'll just keep his stiff upper lip and everything will be fine. Damage is like a slow horror film about the return of the repressed. In a society that says we don't talk about sex and what adults do behind closed doors is their business as long as it resolutely stays behind those closed doors, of course the monster of unchecked libido will eventually burst out and destroy the facade of family values necessary to public political life. The horror is so embedded from the beginning that even if you can lose yourself in the sex, as Stephen obviously does, it's hard to watch the film and imagine that this pair could have a happy ending, which Stephen obviously delusionally does. For maybe too much of its running time, Damage feels caught in limbo as we wait for the other shoe to drop. But the last 20-plus minutes of the film are devastating. And here is where to shut the podcast off if you haven't seen the film and intend to. With marriage to Martin on the horizon, Anna gets a one-room flat for her and his father to tryst in. They're in bed there one afternoon, and in her haste, Anna has left the keys in the outside lock. So when Martin shows up unexpectedly, he's able to walk right in on his naked father on top of his naked fiance. In shock and horror, Martin backs out of the apartment and falls backward over the railing, plummeting down the center of the stairwell for several floors and landing spine first on the cold marble floor below. Stephen runs down the stairs to cradle his son's corpse, irons fully naked all the while. Later, he goes home to Ingrid, who, in a sense, has lost two lovers. 
This scene earned Miranda Richardson an Academy Award nomination. Why didn't you kill yourself? You should have killed yourself when it began. Didn't you know? Didn't you know? What, you thought you could go on? Yes. Yes. Every day. Into the future. Go on betraying us both every day. You are not an evil man. You should have killed yourself when you first realized. And then I would have been able to mourn. It would have been hard, but I would have buried you. And I would have wept. In the end, Stephen loses everything. Anna, Martin, Ingrid, his job, his wealth, his social standing, and ends up somewhere desolate, living in a single room dominated by a wall-sized blow-up of a photograph of himself with Anna and Martin in happier, if duplicitous, times. Through voiceover, we learn that Stephen saw Anna only once more, and she was now just a woman in an airport with a baby. The last words of the film are, she was no different from anyone else. In a world that is, to borrow the word Bergen used, so warped about sex, a totally mundane woman can become the destroyer of men. Damage opened in the U.S. in December 1992, between Bill Clinton's election and his inauguration, when it looked like he had successfully talked his way out of a sex scandal by sort of owning up to his womanizing without really revealing anything that could be used against him. Of course, Monica Lewinsky was several years down the road at this point, but no one knew that. And in December 1992, maybe it looked like the way of the present, if not the future, was a shrugging off of the repression portrayed in Maul's movie. In American real life, Clinton had lost nothing. He had stepped right over Jennifer Flowers to become the most powerful man in the land. Maybe this explains many American viewers' apparent inability to take damage seriously. In October, the film was screened to U.S. exhibitors at a convention in Atlantic City, where, according to The Hollywood Reporter, the film's love scenes elicited some nervous laughs and a few walkouts. The people who stayed, according to the same piece, felt that, with careful handling, Damage might play like Last Tango in Paris. Last Tango had become a shorthand for a movie with sex scenes that made money. But Last Tango was not just a movie with sex scenes in it, and recapturing its success was not really about graphic sex. In order to strike the zeitgeist the way Last Tango had, you had to make a film that had something to say about sex in the moment the film was released that was in concert with what the audience was feeling, but hadn't known how to name. Damage was originally handed an NC-17 rating, and though this was changed to an R after Mal agreed to cut just a few seconds, the film's ratings battle became a talking point. 
there had been an assumption that basic instinct had changed the standards of what could be included in an R-rated film. But when Kathy Berlin of MGM sought appeal for her studio's film, The Lover, which had been rated NC-17 without crossing the same lines that Verhoeven's film had, she said Richard Hefner of the ratings board told her, well, we made a mistake on Basic Instinct, and we can't make this mistake again. Basic Instinct wasn't the new standard, it was the aberration that solidified the old standards. Mal, who had not had a problem with the ratings board before, not even on Pretty Baby, issued a statement insisting that while, quote, the minor changes I have reluctantly made in one scene in order to get an R rating are unimportant and in fact won't be noticed, the film's brief association with an NC-17 had managed to cloak damage in an aura of pornography and created what he called a false expectation in the audience about a film which I know to be one of my very best. There were some critics who saw in Damage what Ma wanted them to see. In Playboy, Bruce Williamson gave it four bunny heads and the following pull quote, a master at stylishly mounting scandalous tales. Ma shows family values reduced to rubble in his brilliant damage. In one article, Ma said, some men do seem to be made very angry and disturbed by this movie. Perhaps they feel threatened by loss of control. But in the U.S., a lot of men reviewed damage positively, including Kenneth Turan in the L.A. Times, Richard Corliss in Time, and Siskel and Ebert, who both gave the movie two thumbs up. In Entertainment Weekly, Owen Gleiberman gave it an A- and wrote that it, quote, casts a true erotic spell while acknowledging that the film has probably divided people more intensely than any release of the holiday season. Even mixed reviews from men skewed positive. In Movie Line, Stephen Farber described the sex scenes as teetering on the brink of inadvertent parody and called Anna a retrograde archetype and still praised Irons' performance as the definitive portrayal of repression and hypocrisy and called the film, on the whole, penetrating. Damage's harshest critics, the ones who seemed to be truly angered and disturbed by it, were female. A particularly brutal and personal review came from Ella Taylor in the LA Weekly. The problem with Damage is the sex, which, far from being a giant turn-on, comes across as a Saturday Night Live does last tango in South Kensington. She wrote, I try to maintain a certain level of professional decorum at press screenings, but the close-up of Benoche's calf weaving around the vicinity of Iron's ecstatic earlobe caused me to explode in merriment even though Mal's wife, Murphy Brown, was sitting not many rows behind me. Damage was too silly to be taken seriously, Taylor added, before noting that Benoche's too Parisian chic Anna made her miss a certain bunny boiling femme fatale. Taylor was moved by Damage to offer a surprising olive branch. Quote, Come back, Adrian Line." All is forgiven. On the opposite coast, in the Village Voice, 
Amy Taubin concurred that Damage was a silly film and called the sex scenes both interminable and ludicrous. Janet Maslin and Julie Salmon published eye-rolling reviews in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, respectively. There seemed to be a sense that after Basic Instinct, which had added improbable sex to a Hitchcock template with an over-the-top sensibility that seemed to revel in its trashiness, to include taboo sex in a movie that wanted to be taken seriously as tragedy was a different kind of crime. It made damage unintentional camp at best. At worst, it was passé. Despite these withering reviews, Damage was in the awards conversation. In addition to her Oscar nomination, Richardson won both the BAFTA and the New York Film Critics Circle Prize. And Damage did well at the American box office for a European film that never played on more than about 250 screens meaning it had the same scope of release that it would have had if it had kept the NC-17 rating. And that maybe gives credence to Mall's complaint that the movie had been fatally marked by the MPAA's first decision. In any case, both Mall and Bergen seemed faintly embarrassed by the film. There's an interview with Mall from 1994 that you can watch on the Criterion channel, and when the interviewer mentions damage, Mall smiles sheepishly but does not seem to want to discuss it further. Bergen barely mentions it in her book about this era, though she discusses other films Mal made when they were together in great detail. She was on the cover of Vanity Fair in December 1992, the month Damage was released, and while Mal is mentioned several times in the story, the fact that he has a new movie coming out is not. They may have been eager to put damage behind them, but they didn't know Mel would only make one more movie, Vanya on 42nd Street in 1994. Right before damage was made, Mal was diagnosed with lymphoma. According to Bergen, he did not accept the diagnosis and sought multiple additional opinions. Louis had open heart surgery in October 1992, an event that he and Bergen felt was related to the stress of their long-distance relationship. Although it's worth noting that that was also around the time that damage was first shown to exhibitors and the MPAA. But he seemed to recover quickly. In May 1993, Ma was named the head of the jury at the Cannes Film Festival, where he was photographed for Paris Match doing shirtless yoga on the roof of the Carlton Hotel his heart surgery scar clearly visible. Mal's jury gave the Palme d'Or to two films, Farewell, My Concubine and The Piano, making Jane Campion the first female director to win it, and the last until 2021. Bergen and Mal were in high spirits in Cannes that spring of 1993, but by the end of the next year, Mal was in a deep depression. In February 1995, he was diagnosed with pneumonia and had trouble getting over it. His immune system seemed to be shot, to the extent that the doctor tested him for AIDS. He didn't have HIV. He had a viral infection in his brain called PML. He spent the last few months of his life at Bergen's home in Los Angeles, progressively losing motor function and speech, before passing away in November 1995 
at the age of 63. Next week, we shift gears to focus on another obsession of the 90s, the modern Lolita. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like this show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, you must remember thispodcast.com. You can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember This content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night, 